0: So,
1: since 2015, we've paused whatever book we've been preaching through um, and and done what we have called the Summer Psalms. And since uh, we've done it every summer since, uh, last summer's a little different since no one really knew when summer began or ended last year. Uh, So we just had our Summer Psalm, one psalm, because we kind of remembered halfway through. Um... Anyway, this year we're going to spend some time in the Psalms, and so we're going to take that break this year. Uh, starting with Psalm 92 today, um, and uh, I think this puts us back on pace then that by, by the end of 2028 we will have preached all the Psalms. Uh, we'll see if it works out that way, but, you know, that's the plans. Anyway, the book of Psalms is easy to find if you've got your Bible in front of you. Uh, you just open right to the middle. That should put you somewhere uh, in there. Unless you have a ton of reference things at the end, and then just go to your left a little bit. Uh, so anyway, uh, before we read it, I do want you to notice uh, in your Bible, there's a title on this psalm. This is the only psalm that's been designated as uh, for the Sabbath. And you see, the Sabbath day is a, a day that's set apart by God for rest from work and a day for gathered worship. For the Jews, the Sabbath began at sunset on Friday evening, and it was over at sunset on Saturday evening. And uh, because of the resurrection of our Lord uh, occurring on a Sunday, we, we Christians recognize the very first day of the week rather than the last day of the week uh, as the Christian Sabbath, or as you'll see it on the very front of your bulletin, and we refer to it as the Lord's Day. Now, despite it being commanded by God in the third commandment to keep this day holy, even as Christians, we... We tend to miss the significance both of the rest and of the corporate worship aspect of this. Uh, it's not a, an issue that's a big deal to us often. And I've, I, I've had people tell me they, they don't show up very often to corporate, corporate worship simply because they, they'd rather read their Bible in a coffee shop or uh, on the back porch, this idea of, you know, it's a nice quiet time with the Lord. Uh, I've listened to grown men tell me that for them, their church is, is being on the lake and, and fishing. And if I'm honest, when I hear someone say this, I can't help but think, you know, perhaps that is your church, but it's certainly not the Lord's church because it's not the gathering of God's people together to worship Him. And so I'll ask you, even right here at the start, what sort of priority corporate worship has for you, for your family. Uh, even broaden that a little bit. Is the the Christian Sabbath a a day that's precious to you? Is it restful? Is it worshipful? If not, I I hope it will become so. It is a a good gift of God for his people. After all, it's our Lord who says in Mark 2.27 that the Sabbath was made for man. Now, Let's read Psalm 92 and, and see how it encourages us to praise and to sing and to just declare the Lord's goodness, uh, not only on Sundays, but, but all the time, right? So, so follow along. Psalm 92, uh, we'll begin in verse 1, because that makes the most sense. <clears throat> it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night to the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers evil shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have pour, poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like the cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. And there is no unrighteousness in him. The grass withers. The flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the psalms. For these 150 beautiful psalms. Thank you for the opportunity to slowly over many, many years make our way through these psalms. Thank you for Psalm 92, this psalm for the Sabbath, these words that model for us worship and teach us of your greatness and which lead us in the way of life. Holy Spirit, enlighten our minds this morning to understand your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, since this is our first psalm of the year, I I do want to remind you, and those of you who have been here a while are going to be like, yeah, you do this often. Uh, When we see the word LORD, and it's in all caps, right, L-O-R-D, all uppercase letters, uh, like you're going to see in this one seven times in this passage, it means that the Hebrew name Yahweh is what's being translated. And this is significant because Yahweh is the covenant name of God. Yahweh is is literally translated, I am who I am, and it conveys this, this sense of, eternal existence of, of absolute self-sufficiency. It, it just communicates this uniqueness of who God is and a greatness of God like no other word in the world. And, and it tells us, right, because of God's self-sus- uh, self-sustainability, right, it tells us that, that everyone is dependent on God, and yet God is dependent on nobody, no one. It, it puts that huge distinction between who God is and, and who we are. And, and so just remember that whenever we see that. And so then we see right right off the bat, the psalm begins with this de- declaration. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to Yahweh. Gathering together each Lord's Day morning provides fellowship. It is healthy for us socially to, to see people and interact and, and be able to smile and share a cup of coffee. It is good in all those ways, but those are bonuses. The primary reason that we gather together is to worship God. It is to give thanks to God. When Martin Luther was was translating the the Hebrew word here uh, for good in verse 1, here he's translating it into German and he uses this German word that means something more like precious. And it was intentional, right? It's intentional because it expresses more than just that it's morally good to do so, but that it it has an impact on us. It, it is precious to us to be able to do so. In this first stanza, we're encouraged to worship God in a few ways. And the first is by giving thanks to God. To genuinely give thanks to God requires two things for us. The first step, if we're to do so, is, is, is to simply be aware of what God has done and who God is. We, we fail to be grateful for the things that we simply take for granted. You're just, that's just the way it is. And you know this, right? Because everything in your life, until it's gone or messed up in some way, you usually don't notice it, right? You don't think about air conditioning until it's gone. You don't think about a car until you can't find your keys. You don't think about uh, whatever it is you have until suddenly you don't have access to it. Are, Are you aware that God is the reason that your heart is beating right now? God is the reason. Are you aware that the Holy Spirit dwelling within you is, is the reason you are even capable of having faith in Jesus, of giving genuine worship to God? Are you aware of the, the trillions upon trillions of other things that you have to be thankful to the Lord for on this very day? And so first, we must be aware. And the second thing necessary is, is, is for thanksgiving, uh, proper thanksgiving is to actually express it. Now, and now, it's fair to say that feeling gratitude in your heart is an expression of thanksgiving, especially when we're talking about God, right? Because God knows what's in your heart, therefore that is an expression of it. But so is singing praises to God, as the psalmist points out there in verse 1, right? Like we did earlier, as we sang declaring that our God is a mighty, a mighty fortress, right? That is outward praise to God, or, or even after that, right? Singing how great God art, right? which is not about God's art. It's how great God is. That's what we're proclaiming there. Now, I I know we all have our favorite songs as well as those we don't don't love. I feel the same way. Sometimes I'm like, oh, this one's... I like this one. That's my personal feeling about it. But let us never forget that it's not primary about our, our song preferences. In fact, that's very low on the totem pole of what's going on in worship. Primarily, when we worship, it's about God whom we are worshiping, right? It's about being together, our voices together, whether it's your favorite song or least favorite song, and giving praise to God for who He is, all that He's done. In verse 2, we learn that that we worship God rightly when we declare his steadfast love and his covenant love in the morning and his faithfulness by night. See, this is, this is done in song corporately, but it's also done in smaller settings when we declare, or, or the way we tend to talk in our just normal conversation, when, when we share how God has displayed his love and his faithfulness to us. It's similar to the way we see it in Psalm 9-1. I, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. Do you ever stop and think, what has the Lord done for you recently? Whatever your answer is, declare that. Declare that story to to others, to your spouse, your your friend, your roommate, whoever. Declare that as a a means of praising God. Like Jesus instructed uh, the the demon possessed man that he heals in 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 Mark 5, and and the demon possessed man just wants to follow him wherever he goes, and and that's great, but Jesus tells him, you know what? Go home to your friends. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Go tell them how he has had mercy on you. Go tell them. Why? Because that's praise to the Lord that's, that's, that's worthy of it, right? Who's worthy of it? And, and we can encourage one another by asking on occasion. I would love it if this was something that we, we regularly asked, and it was just a normal question, right? Because it might sound weird at first if you were to ask this, but where do you see God working in your life right now? If you just went up to someone and asked them, Right? you just tee t-ball question, or what do you call it? A softball question. Where do you see God working in your life right now? Listen, in, in Colossians 2.7, the Apostle Paul describes the church, and, and he says about this church, and I absolutely love this. He, he says, they were abounding in thanksgiving. That, that's a description of, of a particular church. They were abounding in thanksgiving. That's, that was the thing that jumped out at them. What would it look like for us, for Manhattan Press, to be abounding in thanksgiving? And I don't just mean when we're together, like keep your complaints for later kind of thing. Uh, But as we went about our lives at work and at home and in sports and academic and at Fort Riley and on campus and wherever you go, right? If we were just abounding in thanksgiving... For for us all to be so aware of what we have to be grateful for that someone would describe this covenant community. Oh, I know those people. They are just abounding with thanksgiving. Wouldn't that be amazing? And and remember, just as complaining is contagious, so is gratitude. It it really is. Now, Now in verse 3, we observe that musical instruments are are being used to accompany the singing of the congregation. Uh, As a church, we believe in what's called the regulative principle. This means uh, that we are going to worship God only in the ways that he has shown acceptable uh, in his word, and not just our own ideas that we're just going to, you know, come up with whatever we want to do. It's the reason we don't have, juggle, you know, clowns juggling up here, smoke, smoke machines, uh, among a lot of other things, right? Uh, we, we want to be as true to the scriptures and corporate worship as possible. And, and here in verse 3, we, we get a clear approval in God's word of musical instruments in, in worshiping the Lord. It's an acceptable thing for us to do. I, I've got some friends in a denomination, and we tease about this sometimes, but uh, they only sing psalms, psalms, and they only do it a cappella. They do it without instruments because they believe that using instruments in worship is actually a sinful thing to do, a wrong thing to do, leading people astray. Uh, every time I read Psalm ninety-two, every time I come over this, I just I can't help but thinking, uh, if I'm honest, you know how how awkward it must be when, when those friends sing a cappella, verse three. Uh, about worshiping God with lutes and harps, and they refuse to use instruments even, even in that aspect. And Anyway, this verse gives us absolute reason for why we can use instruments in worship. So then in verses 4 to 6, we, we see that we, as, as God's people, we are to be glad-hearted people, to describe us in that way. That, that's who we are, right? Not, not only are, are we to sing, but as verse 4 puts it, we are to sing to joy or sing for joy. Now, there's a time in a worship service that we sing sadder things, that are mournful things. There's, there's a place for that, but there's also a very important place where we are singing for joy, even when we are in one of those, those more somber aspects. Now, of course, as Hebrews 12, 28 says, we are to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, and yet our reverence at times should include joyful jubilation, for the grace of the Lord to us. And, and, and as we see in verses 4 and 5, you know, also just the great works of, of God. We are to be joyful for that. The, the author does not list any of God's specific worship, uh, works in this psalm. Not a, not a single one, really, besides himself specifically. Uh, but the entirety of the scriptures and, and the narrative of your own life is just bursting with praiseworthy, song-worthy tales of God working for his people, working for you. In, in amazing ways. And then in verse 5, we, we learn that not only are God's works great, but His thoughts are deep. His thoughts are deep. This calls to mind what the Apostle Paul, carried along by the Holy Spirit, proclaimed in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable His ways as God enlightens our minds, we learn to, uh, to not only believe and understand Scripture, but we also can look at general revelation, look at the world, at creation, and, and see God's thoughts in, in the sense of how He has engineered the, the sun and the stars and how He's engineered over 8.7 million different species that we've identified thus far, and, and, and these species, species, right, that coexist often dependent upon one another even for survival. It's amazing. It's amazing. Now, as Christians, we can be amazed at God when, when we learn things like, like, that a, like a 20-foot giraffe has a 22-pound heart. Next time that you're at the gym, go pick up the you know, 20-pound weight. That's how much this heart weighs. It's, it's two feet long, right? Something like this, unless you're a fisherman, then it's like this. Two feet long. It, it's got, it, it produces, it, and it's this way because it's got to produce twice the blood pressure of a typical animal. When we learn it has a pressure regulation system that prevents excess flow of blood to its brain that would otherwise just kill it when it simply lowered its neck to get a drink of water from a stream. Or when we learn how gross it is that that same giraffe has a tongue that is 20 inches long and it uses it to clean out the insides of its own ear. I mean, these are amazing things that we see God doing. His thoughts are very deep. In, in verse 6, we, we see the distinction between the creator God and, and, and the creature, right? Between man and, man and and God. Specifically, the rebellious God denying man is what we're seeing the distinction of here. The, the psalmist is, is pretty frank here, in fact, saying that the stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. They, they cannot understand how great the works of God are. They cannot understand the, the shortness of life and and their own frailty. They, they cannot understand the deep thoughts of God. That term, stupid, here is uh, in the Hebrew, is actually a word that literally means a, a brute beast. You, you see, the, the Bible teaches that we are created to know God, but when people stubbornly refuse, to accept God's grace or, or deny God's existence, or, or when we are, our people are apathetic to God, when, when, when that's the case, even if they are intellectually brilliant, I mean like top of our understanding, brilliant people, no matter, you know, but when that's the case, they may become, spiritually speaking, no wiser than a brute beast if they do not have their hearts enlightened, their minds enlightened to, to see God, to know God, right? Spiritually speaking, they're no wiser than a brute beast, just a wild animal chasing after base needs. And that's, that's stupid, as the psalmist says here, or it's translated here. The author continues to describe that that, that, that person who is in rebellion against God in verse 7 when, when the psalmist says, the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish. The psalmist lives in the world that we do, right? He's not writing in some utopia situation. He knows the things that we experience every day as well. We, we see evil people flourish. We just do. That's reality in the world we live in. We, we, we see this all the time, wicked men flourishing uh, with, you know, with flourishing tech companies, we we see wicked people with flourishing political careers, we we see people lie and cheat and steal, and and it works, it's successful, it actually, they prosper, right, we we get to see on weird videos or magazines, right, it works, They, they prosper, they live in giant houses and take luxurious vacations, and from a distance you can't help but wonder why, why do the wicked flourish, But they're flourishing, their their success, the psalmist says, it's like grass. That's not a compliment. Grass doesn't flourish for long in the Middle East, and like grass, they will soon be destroyed. The the sun just destroys it. They will soon be destroyed forever. Don't don't envy the grass. Short-lived success. The, he, he is no fool who values eternal life with God far more than a, a, a flourishing few years in this present life. Which brings us to verse 8. And this is the heart of Psalm 92. There, if you notice, right, there's seven verses that precede verse 8. There's seven verses that come afterwards. And did you notice the immediate verse before and after, 7 and 9? Um, are both made of three lines, while the rest of the psalm is made up of two-line verses. It all kind of centers into this one point. It's all intentional. Here in verse 8, we have the only single line in the entire psalm declaring uh, the greatness and the eternality of, of God when the psalmist says, But you, O Lord, are high forever. The Lord is high forever. We, we know this in, in sports, we see it anyway, right? The, the greatest is always Eclipse, always. In my childhood, Jordan was the greatest, and, and then it was Kobe was the greatest player of the time, and, and now it's LeBron, or whoever you want to argue for, I don't even care. Uh, the point is, people are people age. We, we get weak, people die, but uh, not God. He, he always has been the greatest, the most powerful, and he will always be the greatest, the most powerful. There is none higher than God in any other way, in any way. None higher than our Lord. Verse 9 again shows the downfall of the wicked is a sure thing. Only this time he he makes it a little more clear that uh, these are the enemies of God and they are going to be scattered and perish. And and then in verse 10 with uh, that contrast word but, right? That should always draw your attention when you see it in scripture. It says that, you know, the wicked are going to perish, but you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. Now, it's kind of interesting in a historical way. Uh, the translators of the Greek Septuagint, right? They're taking the Hebrew and they translate it into Greek. Uh, they incorrectly use the word meaning one horned for the Hebrew term here. Uh, and as a result, the King James Version, in, instead of wild ox, actually says unicorn in it, right? Right? Uh, That's what it is. You have exalted my horn like that of the unicorn. Now you're only going to find it there in the King James. Uh, Anyway, it should be wild ox and a wild ox is similar to a modern bull. It's not a significant issue uh, because it's about strength. That's the idea of the horn here, not the animal, but the idea uh, of this this strength. The image of a horn in the Scriptures is is always this this symbol of power and and strength, and and that's what's going on here. This is the psalmist giving his own testimony, right? He's he's poetically, but, but, but sharing what God has done for him, namely that God has made him strong, that God has done that. And so he proclaims that. The, the pouring out of fresh oil in the second line of verse 10, that's a symbol of, of joyous blessing. In verse 11, we, we see that God's enemies are also the author's enemies. And and with his eyes and his ears, he, he has seen and he has heard their downfall. He, he knows that's going to happen. As, as Christians, we go through life and, and we continue to, to share the gospel and pray for people in the hopes that that our Lord will, will deliver sinners from, from, from God's wrath through faith in Jesus. We long to see that. We, we continue to rejoice when the Holy Spirit transforms enemies of God into children of God. But, but we can also rest in the truth that evil will be brought down. It will be brought to justice at God's, just, at God's judgment. And then in the, the last section here, beginning in verse 12, it, it highlights this distinction between... The evil and the righteous. Uh, and, and when you hear righteous in the Psalms like this, I, I know we tend to want to go to perfection. Don't, don't think perfect, right? Because it often talks about men in, in, as, in, in a way like they're, they're, they're a righteous man, right? Don't think perfect. Think those who know God, those who worship God, those who earnestly seek to obey God and His Word. Uh, th- that's the idea of, of righteous in the Psalms. And so in verse 12... It's making this contrast that while the wicked, back in verse 7, were said to flourish like grass that quickly perishes, the righteous here are compared to both the palm trees and to cedar trees that they know as growing in Lebanon. Now, since the palm tree grows in well watered places and since it produces dates, right, massive fruits often, it was and is a symbol of life. Uh, a, a symbol of fertility even. And, and the cedar tree is, a, is large and, and hardy, and, and so it has been a, a symbol of strength, similar to the way that we tend to speak of, you know, like the mighty oak tree, uh, is it, this idea, it's a, it's a symbol of strength. And so both the palm tree and, and the cedar have this important place in the life of, of God's people. Uh, both of them were represented in the temple. All the major structures and aspects of the temple were, were made from cedar, Strong wood for those beams, and, and carved into the walls of the temple were, were images of, of palm trees, fruitful palm trees. In uh, verse thirteen, he goes on to say that the righteous are planted in the house of the Lord; they flourish in the courts of our God. Planted in the house of the Lord—what, well, what an image! The trees. Planted in God's house, I know is a little weird at first because we don't plant trees in houses. That's just not something you do. Well, you you might know this though, right? That trees that are planted next to a steady, consistent source of water, they will flourish, right? That that is how it typically works and um, they're going to flourish the most. And the the psalmist's point here is that these, these righteous people are like trees that are, are near a, a steady source of water, kind of like we see back in Psalm 1. You can look at that later sometime. You see in the, in the symbolism here, though, that, that God's house is, is like this source of water, this source of, of nourishment. That's, that's where spiritual nourishment is to be found. If, if we are to flourish and grow strong and to be fruitful, not in ourselves, but in the Lord, in, in our closeness, closeness to God, right? It's to be planted in the house of the Lord. Jesus... Makes the same point with a different illustration, the image of a vine in John 15. Right there he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you, you can't do anything. There's this union with Christ that's necessary. Through, through the lens of the, the New Testament, we may also think of the believer planted in the house of God's church. A place where the means of grace is proclaimed week in and week out. By, by this, I, I don't just mean that, that being here physically present uh, brings spiritual vitality. As if if I just show up and sit in the corner, I'm going to be like, you know, flourishing spiritually. That's not what I mean. What I mean is, is, is faith filled participation in the worship service and, and the life of, of this or any other covenant community, covenant family. This serves as, as good soil and fresh water for the healthy growth of our faith. So that we will be like palm trees. So that we will be like cedar trees planted in the house of the Lord. And I need to point out, again, you know, just going to church is not the same thing as being planted in the house of the Lord. Planted is a permanent thing. When we, are, when we are planted, our, our roots grow deep, and they grow out, and they, they intertwine with, with others, right? If you want to think of the image of the palm tree, the, the roots intertwine with those next to them, making both way more sturdy when storms come into our life, when we have things to, to struggle through. And so let me ask you right here, do you believe that you are planted at Manhattan Presbyterian, or do you just go here? On Sunday morning, do you ask, hey, are we going to church today? Only to discuss how tired you are from the late night, the night before, or how you'd rather just do something else today instead. Sadly, for many professing Christians, their church community is the lowest commitment they have of any group, school, baseball team, musical group, extended families in town, whatever it might be. For for many, just about anything trumps gathering with the people of God and worshiping our Lord. It, it trumps involvement in other times of spiritual nourishment during the week, like men's or, or women's studies or small groups, or just getting together with someone and seeing how they're doing, encouraging them. And I don't, I don't mean this to be harsh. I know it might sound harsh. I don't mean it to be harsh. But, but if you merely go to church like that, if that's the way you function with your covenant community, you're not planted in the house of the God. And so do not expect to flourish spiritually. We are Christ's church when we are gathered together to worship God. Or gathered together to listen to God and His word. Or, or gathered together to pray to God or, or, or to use our gifts together in the service of, uh, of God or for the glory of God or the good of the community. When we are gathered together, being planted in the house of God is far more than just showing up here on a Sunday morning. But, but that is a good start. Right? We we tell you all the time, if if nothing else, make that a consistent thing in your life. Our elders encourage you, strongly encourage you to make that a, a consistent aspect of your life. Christian, if if you're not already, it's time for you to be planted. It really is. In verse fourteen, we are told these trees planted in the house of the Lord still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. You see, part of our humanity is that we grow old. We don't typically like that, but that's a reality. Our, our bodies become weak. Our, our minds may falter. But if we seek the Lord, our faith grows strong and we continue to bear fruit even in old age. Like, like 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, we, we do not lose heart. Our, our outer self is wasting away, getting old. Uh, our inner self is being renewed day by day. We are built up in our faith. Any of you, I have found the older I get, the more I find that to be absolutely true. You start to see spiritual maturity that you wish you had when you were 18, and, and yet your body, you'd rather be 18 uh, in, in that way. Uh, and verse 15 here makes clear that one of the fruits that comes with old age is to testify to the faithfulness and the greatness of God so that we can encourage the faith uh, of those younger than us. You know, for, for many years we we used to pray, uh, even in our pastoral prayers, for gray heads. Uh, we've since learned that gray heads don't like being called grayheads. heads. Uh, but what we meant was, I think our oldest member at the time was like 42 uh, and we wanted people who had more life experience, people that have grown in the faith, that have gone through more, have, who have walked with the Lord for a long time for the, for the wisdom they bring. We, we long for that, and, and the Lord has blessed us with that in two ways, by bringing people who already had gray hair and by uh, making the rest of us have gray hair just by getting old. It's not the way we meant it, but that's what happened. Um, But an old, an old orchard still produces new fruit. It's one of my favorite things. I, I think there's a church somewhere near St. Louis that actually holds that name, Old Orchard, for that whole idea. That even as we grow old, we won't stop producing good fruit uh, in the Lord. So, so anyway, my, my hope and my prayer for each of us is that when you're asked this or something like this, how, how is your, how's your walk with the Lord going? What what is your relationship with the Lord look like right now? How are, how are things spiritually for you? not so, you know right now, if someone asked you something like that, that you'd be able to say something along the lines of, "I am flourishing. I am striving. Life's not perfect. I've got struggles, but, but I am flourishing." My my roots are deep. My faith is strong like the cedar. My brothers and sisters are praying for me. I am loved by my covenant family. I am loved by my Lord. I am am part of a covenant community, and I don't just go to a building. I am part of Christ's church. I gather with others, and then I go out strengthened as an ambassador for my Lord because I am planted in the house of the Lord. That's, That's my prayer for us. Let us pray. Father, may we find joy in worshiping you every day but especially, uniquely, togetherly may we find joy in worshiping you on the Lord's day with each other. May we find ourselves planted in your house in your presence and growing strong like the cedar and bearing fruit like the palm tree. Do that work in us, Lord, as as individuals and and as your church, your bride. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.